0: The expectation of a UFC pay per view is that the main event is a big deal. The undercard might be stacked, it might be weak, but that headliner is going to be the reason you're willing to fork up your hard-earned cash to watch. With the UFC running monthly pay per views now since 2006, though, not every headliner meets that lofty standard, which can lead to pay per views being converted to fight nights or shows being outright canceled. But sometimes the UFC will polish up a crappy main event and sell it anyway. So today we're going to be counting down 10 cards with headliners more worthy of the early prelims than UFC pay per view main events. These fights weren't exactly moving the needle, and the pay-per-view buy rate reflected it. Hey, before we get into it, don't forget to like, subscribe, and click the bell to turn on notifications. That way you never miss an upload. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are the 10 worst headlining fights in UFC pay-per-view history. Number 10, Anderson Silva versus Travis Luter, UFC 67 fans were fairly stunned when Anderson Silva came into the UFC and demolished Chris Lieben before beating up Rich Franklin at UFC 64 to take the middleweight title. He was obviously very good, but by UFC 67 nobody was thinking this guy was the GOAT. His fight odds history will tell you that the expectation of him always winning didn't really start until after the Dan Henderson victory. But his first ever title defense was meant to be an intriguing one. With the popularity of the first three seasons of Tough, the UFC decided to switch up the formula a bit in the fourth installment and do comeback tournaments. Walterweights and middleweights who hadn't fared as well in the UFC were going to get their chance at gold should they win the season. The welterweight winner was Matt Serra, and we all know how that turned out. He was actually supposed to fight George St. Pierre on this card, but the champ got injured. Middleweight season winner Travis Luter, though, he was ready to go. Except for the fact that he missed weight. He missed weight for the title fight he earned from winning the comeback season of The Ultimate Fighter. And so UFC 67 was headlined by just a middleweight fight, just a fight with no stakes between Anderson Silva and a guy who was one and two in the UFC before winning the Ultimate Fighter. Keep in mind, the Sarah fight hadn't happened yet, so there was very little expectation of these winners. And things became even more mundane with the fact that the title wasn't even on the line. Silva submitted Luter in the second round despite him being the Michael Jordan of BJJ. Shout out to my boy Goldie. Number nine, Max Holloway versus Anthony Pettis, UFC 206. When the UFC goes big, they really go big. Their 205 event and debut in New York was epic in scale, with Conor McGregor capping the night off as double champ. Building from the momentum of that historic card, the promotion would make their next pay-per-view offering in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and wow, would it be nowhere near the previous event. If UFC 205 was a T-bone from Ruth's Chris, then UFC 206 was a six-piece chicken nugget from McDonald's with cold fries. The card was supposed to be headlined by Daniel Cormier and Rumble Johnson in a light heavyweight championship rematch. Not bad, not bad at all, but less than three weeks before the card, DC was forced out with an injury. Then the UFC asked Rumble if he would like to fight Gagar Masasi instead, most likely for an interim title, but Anthony decided waiting for the real thing was probably for the best. And so the UFC had two weeks to come up with a new headliner. Instead of scrambling to find unbooked talent, they pulled a fight from the undercard between Max Holloway and Anthony Pettis to serve as the new main event. But they couldn't just have these two fight each other for nothing, otherwise how could they justify not turning it into a fight night card? So the UFC made the most pointless interim title of all time. Jose Aldo was already the interim featherweight champion, Connor had just become double champ, of course, so they stripped Connor, made Jose undisputed, then had Holloway and Pettis fight for an interim title nobody needed, just so they could still make this a pay-per-view. Yeah, it was a bunch of nonsense. Even sillier, Pettis didn't make weight, so only Holloway could win the pointless belt, which he did. He fought Aldo that spring and unified the titles. Number 8. Rashad Evans vs. Thiago Silva, UFC 108 Sometimes a card just falls apart, and all you can do is offer up whatever you've got left and see if anybody's still interested. UFC 108 was cursed like the black pearl. Seriously, this thing died a thousand deaths before it would eventually be headlined by former champion Rashad Evans, who had been out for almost a year after his devastating defeat against Lyoto Machida, versus Tiago Silva, who had also been devastatingly KO'd by Machida two fights previous. And the stakes of the bout would be... Nothing, really. One step closer to the title again. The show was originally meant to be headlined by Anderson Silva taking on Vitor Belfort, a bout that would eventually happen and end with one of the most iconic moments in the Spider career, but Silva had just had elbow surgery and wasn't going to be able to make the date. Then they were going to have Brock Lesnar versus Shane Carwin headline the event, talk about a pay-per-view, when the two did eventually fight at UFC 116 and did over a million buys. 108 was just bad timing though for the champion, as Lesnar was still dealing with diverticulitis. Then the UFC tried to make Big Nog versus Cain Velasquez in a title eliminator, the winner guaranteed a shot at the victor of Lesnar, Carwin, but Gary got a staph infection. Then they thought, okay, we'll do Cain and Shane, but Carwin opted for knee surgery instead while he waited for Brock. The UFC had run out of options. So the return of Rashad Evans was the angle. It wasn't an angle that sold particularly well, 300,000 buys, but it was, I suppose, better than nothing. Given the litany of injuries that plagued the undercard as well, I'm thinking 108 should have just been converted into a fight night. Number seven, Demetrius Johnson versus Chris Carriasso, UFC 178. In his incredible run of 13 straight UFC flyweight title fights, Demetrius Johnson was in a total of eight pay-per-view events. Four of those cards he would not serve as the headliner, but as the co-main event under a larger weight class title fight. In the four that he did headline, the average pay-per-view buy rate was 140,000, which is low for pretty much any era in UFC history, besides the Dark Ages when pay-per-view was essentially outlawed. And while three of those headline challengers—John Dotson, Kyoji Horiguchi, and Ali Bagautinov—were all fascinating matchups for the flyweight king, and in my mind, perfectly fine pay-per-view fare, Chris Carriaso Johnson's UFC 178 opponent. Did quite reach that level of intrigue for most. He'd been a carryover from the WEC in 2010, coming into the promotion on a loss to Hennemarau. Over the next three years, Kariyasa would go seven and three, which isn't horrible, but he lost to Michael McDonald, John Moraga, and Jussie Formiga, while his best win was probably to Takeya Mizugaki. He earned his title shot by defeating Luis Smoka, who only had a single UFC bout. The promotion really leaned into the undercard to sell this event. UFC 178's poster was three panels of equal size. The title fight at the top, followed by Cerrone versus Alvarez, his debut, and Poirier McGregor won. That's right, Connor was on the poster for a card that sold like shit. Stoolgate happened on this night, as well as Dominic Cruz's incredible return to action on the prelims, Katsangano TKO to Manda Nunes. who would have known that was one of the most significant wins on the entire card, an important night with great moments that nobody bought because of a weak headliner, 205,000 buys. Number 6. Rich Franklin vs. Yushin Okami, UFC 72 All right, it's 2007. You're the UFC and you're heading to Belfast for the first time ever. It's a pay-per-view event. Who are you going to have as your headliner? Maybe Randy Couture's first title defense after coming out of retirement and winning the heavyweight strap. Too big? Okay, Sean Shirk defending his lightweight title against Hermes Franca. Too big too. Okay, let's do Rich Franklin versus Martin Campman. Martin's out. All right, Yushin Okami then. Let's do Rich Franklin versus Yushin Okami as the headliner for UFC 72 in Belfast. That'll sell a ton of pay-per-views, especially considering it'll be on tape delay and the result will already be known before you can buy it. Perfect. Oh shit, it only did 200,000 buys. Yeah, so during this era, the UFC was really big on expanding into the Euro market, primarily the UK. And so from UFC 70 to UFC 138, every once in a while, a numbered card, which would normally indicate pay-per-view, would take place in various parts of the UK or Germany. But what they realized after the debacle that was this event, UFC 72, fans really don't care about these nothing cards and they're not going to pay money for tape delay. And so the other six or so numbered cards that were a part of this initiative by the UFC would air on Spike TV on tape delay and do fairly well in comparison into asking fans to fork up pay-per-view cash. Now, Rich Franklin is a solid name for a headliner, and Okami was on a four-fight win streak in the promotion. It's not as if the bout had no stakes either. It was a title eliminator. But like, imagine if the UFC headlined a pay-per-view this year with Robert Whittaker versus Derek Brunson on tape delay. It's a good fight. I'm not paying for it, though. Number five, Frank Mir versus Mirko Krokop, UFC 119. It's widely considered one of the worst UFC events of all time, and before the entire show shit the bed, it wasn't the greatest on paper either. UFC 119 marked the promotion's first ever trip to Indianapolis, and they welcomed the Circle City into the fold with Frank Mir coming off an interim title fight loss to Shane Carwin versus Mirko Krokop at what would be the beginning of the end of his UFC run. The next three fights, all KO-TKO losses. He would never compete in the promotion again. Tell me the UFC knows their headliner is weak without actually telling me. The two main eventers are the same size as the co-main event fighters on the poster. And there's really not much of an excuse for this card. Top billing was originally to be Mir versus Big Nog, which would eventually take place at UFC 140 and feature that iconic Kimura finish, but it wasn't the headliner for that show, and rightfully so. Noguera couldn't make 119 due to an injury that ended up requiring surgery, and so Krokop was summoned. Mirko was coming off two wins, but one was Anthony Perosh, who had no business in that fight, and a shock submission victory over Pat Barry late in the third at UFC 115, a lively enough moment to earn him this headliner, but considering only a few shows from then, Cain Velasquez would defeat Brock Lesnar for the heavyweight title, it's not as if the stakes were exactly high here as previously mentioned the show was a real disaster with an ultra boring main card including the headliner which mercifully ended in the third with a knee by mir 295000 bought this one and regretted it number 4 chris cyborg versus yana kunitskaya ufc 222 When you think of all the moving parts and how many people are involved, it's amazing more pay-per-view events don't completely fall apart like UFC 222 did. The show was originally going to be headlined by Max Holloway defending his featherweight title against Frankie Edgar, a fight that was supposed to happen three months earlier before Frankie got hurt. This time, it would be Holloway who couldn't go due to an injury, and so 222's troubles began. Next, the UFC tried to book the rematch between bantamweight champ TJ Dillashaw and former teammate Cody Garbrandt. That's fun, right? Those two hate each other. Well, TJ had a whole list of reasons that one was gonna be a big nope. Just had a kid, wasn't training, wanted a superpower, with Demetrius Johnson, didn't think Cody deserved a rematch. Alright, fuck us then. We've got three weeks before this pay-per-view happens and we don't have a damn headliner, how about we get Chris Cyborg to defend her featherweight title even though we're trying to set up a super fight with Amanda Nunez? She can fight debuting Yana Kunitskaya from Invicta, who lost to Tanya Evinger a year previous, someone Cyborg dominated. I guess it'll have to do. Now featherweight is obviously not exactly the deepest division in the sport, and I understand that big time matchups like Cyborg versus Nunez are going to be the exception and not the norm, but that doesn't make forking up pay-per-view cash for this one any easier. Chris and got the TKO victory in the first round, the show did 260,000 buys. Number three, Andre Arlovsky versus Justin Eilers, UFC 53. UFC 52, the pay-per-view that came right after the Tough Season 1 finale, was a landmark show for the promotion. Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture headlined in a light heavyweight title fight, it was a massive show, it did great numbers, it was the turning point for the UFC really following the Ultimate Fighter's success, and they followed up that monumental show with an absolute dud. In one of the weakest eras in heavyweight history, Andre Arlovsky would become the interim champion after defeating Tim Sylvia at UFC 51. Frank Mir, the actual champ, was sidelined after his near-fatal motorcycle accident. With the title's future unclear, rather than promoting our Arlov- right away, they had him defend his interim title at UFC 53, in what was going to be an incredible show. Originally to take place in Japan, Andre was going to fight Mirko Krokop at Yokohama Arena, but the promotion couldn't find enough sponsorships to make the trip worthwhile, and so the fight was scrapped, and they headed to Atlantic City. Then former champion Rico Rodriguez was going to be part of the headlining bout with the Pitbull, but he had issues in camp and was forced to drop. The solution? Justin Eilers. One and one in the UFC, he'd just been KO'd in the first round by Paul Buintello at UFC 51. Why not Paul then? Well, he wasn't medically cleared yet when the headliner was made. He's on the card. He wins the first bout of the show. They just couldn't get him in time to start printing posters. That's how shallow this division was at the time. Arlovski would TKO Eilers in the first round, and only 90,000 people bothered to pay to see it. Compare that to the pay-per-view previous, which sold 280,000. Big flop. Number two, Amanda Nunes versus Raquel Pennington, UFC 224. This event is as much a victim of the number four entry about UFC 222 as it is anything. As I mentioned, the UFC at the time of that event was trying to put together Amanda Nunez versus Chris Cyborg on this show, UFC 224, which would have been of course a massive fight, arguably the most significant in women's MMA history. A fight that ultimately did take place at UFC 232, although it would not serve as the headliner, it was instead the co-main event to John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson too. So by stealing Cyborg away from the super fight at 224, in order to make the terrible 222, this card also suffered greatly and with dire consequences in terms of pay-per-view buys. Nunez most definitely needed a fight since the cyborg bout was off, and so she would defend her bantamweight title against Raquel Pennington. Everybody loves Rocky in the hardcore MMA community, and she certainly deserved a bantamweight title fight. She was on a four-fight win streak in the division. She'd just defeated former champion Misha Tate. The fight itself made sense, it's just that with the UFC's issues booking main events around this time, and cards falling apart all over the place, this Nunez versus Pennington bout served as the event's solo title fight and its main event when it really probably shouldn't have. This was simply not a pay-per-view caliber card. The Champ would dominate the bout, getting a fifth round TKO to top off her performance and second title defense. Unfortunately though, the show would only do 85,000 buys, the lowest rate of any modern era UFC pay-per-view. Number one, Holly Holm versus Jermaine Durandamy. Holy shit, was 2016 a massive year for the UFC. Conor McGregor breaks records with the two Diaz fights and becomes the double champ at UFC 205, the promotion's debut in the Big Apple. Ronda Rousey returns at the end of the year for that massive card against Amanda Nunes. Brock Lesnar returns at UFC 200, a milestone show that sells over a million buys as well. The UFC is bought by WME IMG for $4 billion. It's probably the best year the promotion's ever had and will likely never be topped. So how do you follow up such a year? How do you kick off 2016? 2017 right? How do you set the tone? Holly Holm versus Jermaine Durandamy for the inaugural Featherweight title. Honestly, we're lucky we even got that. UFC 208 was supposed to happen in January in Anaheim, but there were so few fights available as headliners, the UFC scrapped the show altogether and moved to the next month. Originally, they wanted Max Holloway and Jose Aldo to unify the Featherweight Championship, but Max had that fight with Pettis at 206 for the pointless interim gold and needed some more time to heal up and train. And that's really it. No other headliners were ever attached to this show. Technically, the division didn't even exist yet. It was supposed to to be created for Chris Cyborg, but she couldn't participate in this inaugural title fight as she was still sorting out a bogus USADA issue. Holm was coming off two losses in a row. Durandamy had never headlined an event, it just didn't make any sense. Go back to any articles that announced this fight as the headliner and read the comments. They're brutal. Not exactly the kickoff the UFC wanted after a landmark year. Unfortunately, the fight itself would also be a disaster, something we've discussed plenty of times on this channel. Tough start to 2017. A big ol' shout out to my dude Luke Taylor for editing this video together. You can find him and his awesome digital art on twitter at cool to me underscore a big big thank you to ben rosette who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his instagram and twitter page at ben rosette all right that's all i got for you thanks for watching please like subscribe and have a wonderful day